Let's get ready to roll. Lead Like a Lady features amazing women at the top of their game who know what it's like to be the only woman in the room. They're here to share their stories, inspire greatness, and provide advice to all the women coming up behind them. Now, here's your host, Army veteran and retired FBI assistant special agent in charge, Gina L. Osborne. Welcome to Lead Like a Lady. I'm your host, Gina L. Osborne. Today, we're going to talk about second acts. To take a quote from my guest, don't retire, rewire. Jerry Williams had a powerhouse career in the FBI, got into the media game, and went on to become a successful podcaster, author, and TV consultant. For those of us at a certain age who have decided it's finally time to make our dreams come true, Jerry shares her experiences on how she did just that. Now sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Jerry, I was so excited to have you on the show to chat about second acts, especially because I'm in my second act right now. But before we do that, I want to touch on your career with the FBI because you were one of the pioneers entering on duty in 1982. And I don't think a lot of people know this, but women weren't allowed to be agents until after J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972. So what was it like back then? Yeah, and, and you know, when you think, oh, it was 10 years before that, so everything must have been beautiful by the time Jerry showed up. It was 10 years before, but there still hadn't been a lot of women in the FBI. I think it might have been 5% or 7%. You know, I, I, should have, I should have looked it up before I got on spouting uh, statistics, but there wasn't a lot of women even 10 years later. And with the number of women that were in the FBI with 56 offices throughout the country, ma major offices, and then all of these different resident agencies, you know, you sprinkle those women around and you still have only one or two in some cases in, you know, your field office. And I'm sure in other cases there were none. It sounds like a lot, you know, a lot of time had passed since women started in the FBI in 1972. But I can tell you, you know, I still was like a, uh, a, a unicorn, you know, walking into uh, some of the offices I walked in, especially as a black female, because at that time there was less, I think it was like 0.5% uh, of the, you know, people in the FBI were black women. And even today it's 1%. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was different. Let me just tell you that. Yeah, I can only imagine. What offices did you go to and what violations did you work? All right. So my first office, I came in during a time period where you had to go back to the office from which you were recruited. And so I was in the Norfolk division because I, I'm an Air Force brat and my father retired in, at Langley Air Force Base. And so I had gone to a couple of years of high school. And so after college, I came back to that area. So I, re I was six months in Norfolk and then I got transferred to beautiful Sacramento, California, where I was for a year and a half. And so in Norfolk, I worked bank robberies, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, my first case and my first arrest were all in, in the Norfolk area. And then when I got to Sacramento, I was working government fraud investigations. 
And so that's where my career in economic crime and fraud began. I was only there a year and a half, which was so strange. And then everyone in my class was transferred again. And I ended up in Philadelphia, where I again was placed on a government fraud squad. I was very fortunate when I got to my first field office where there was a handful of women back then who could support me and uh, understood the situation that I was going through. So what was it like for you when you were one of the only women and you didn't have that support structure? Well, when I was a brand new agent, you know, in my mid-20s, it at times was overwhelming. And I think at times people made me feel, and I know no one can make you feel anything, but we'll, we'll I'll, I'll continue with that. But I was, I was made to feel like, why is she here? And I think I, you know, had some questions about that myself because of all the transfers and the assignments. You know, I didn't feel like I had accomplished what some of my counterparts had uh, encountered. In those early days, it was definitely, uh, you know, something that made me question, you know, myself. I can tell you after those first four years, I don't ever think I even remembered that I was the only, you know, woman in the room because I got to a point where I felt very comfortable in, in that space. And, you know, and I was very comfortable with people coming to me and asking me for my advice and, and for being a training agent and all of that. And it just didn't become that big of a deal anymore. And I think that is because I had grown in so much more confidence. And, and can I define confidence for you and my, my, my definition? Yes, please. I define confidence in you knowing that you don't know everything, that you're not sure what's going on, but you know you'll be able to figure it out. And that's what I learned. Okay, so what's going on here? You know, my mind's not spinning thinking everybody's going to figure out I don't know what I'm doing. No, no, I accept it. In this particular case, this is new. I may not know what I'm doing, but I am going to be able to figure it out. And that's you know, what I believe is confidence. What advice can you give people who are in a new situation like you were, where they may not know quite yet what they're doing, but also feel that maybe they just don't fit in? Mm. Cut themselves some slack, definitely. That imposter syndrome is real. You know, in, in my early days, you know, I again, question whether or not I had what it takes to be an FBI agent. I kind of felt like I was, you know, just kind of winging it. And some, at some point somebody was going to, going to find out, but that probably was the problem. That probably was the issue. And I think probably the best thing I could tell anyone who is working a job or placed in a situation where they're, you know, supposed to be in charge or handling something is that you can do it. You don't need to ask permission. You know, you are as good as anybody else. And all you need to do is if you don't know something is to find out, find it out, you know, ask a question. Don't sit there in a vacuum thinking, 
I don't know what I'm doing and everybody's going to find out. Well, take the responsibility to find out what you're doing. You know, whether it's having to call somebody who's not working in your group, but outside the group to say, hey, look, I don't want to admit to my group, I don't know what I'm doing, but can you give me some suggestions and some some tips on what I need to do? But if you feel you don't know what you're doing, then you, it is, it is on you to go out and get the training and the education and the experience so that you can go back into a situation and have that confidence that, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I'm going to be able to figure it out. I think that's great advice. Well, it took a lot of courage for you to do that, Jerry. I don't know if you realize that or not, but just looking at that and knowing the situation that you went into, and I just want to thank you for paving the way for women like me to come be behind you to make it easier for us. So thank you very much for that. I like to call you the second act whisperer because you decided to leave retirement from the Bureau to take a road less traveled. Instead of taking a corporate security job like most FBI agents do when they retire, you went into the media. How did that happen? As an FBI agent in the last five years of my career, I was asked to be what we call the media rep or the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. And at the time, it was a very influential role, you know, because I did speak for the office. I did speak for the special agent in charge. I did all the TV stuff, you know, unless there was somebody, a subject expert, you know, person uh, uh, to do that. But I, you know, handled all the media and did all of that. And so when it was time for me to look for a post-FBI job, I was hired as the director of media relations as the spokesperson for the Philadelphia transportation system, which is called SEPTA, the Southeastern Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, uh, SEPTA. And so I did that for seven years. And I'm telling you, to be the spokesperson at the time, it was the fifth largest transportation system in the United States, you know, only behind Chicago and New York and Houston. I forgot what the other ones were, but we had all the buses, all the trains, all the uh, trolleys and uh, the subways in Philadelphia. And I was their spokesperson. And I mean it, if somebody was run over by a bus or try to commit suicide in front of a moving train, uh, or there was a theft or an assault on the system, you know, I was called 24 hours, you know, a, a day, you know, going out to, to speak uh, and help to shape the public image of, of the Transportation Authority. I'm telling you, that was a job. That was a job. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't go to the grocery store. I couldn't go, you know to a family event without being called and, you know, asked to, to take care of a matter or to handle a matter. And SEPTA had their own police department. And so I was always uh, engaged with the police department, talking to the Philadelphia police, and in many instances, back with the FBI, if it was something happening that could possibly be re- related to terrorism uh, on, on, on the system. So uh, I did that for seven years, and so <laughs> that that was that was a reinvention. You had to be in hair and makeup the whole time. 
Yes. <laughs> Always ready. Yes, absolutely. You know, ready to camera ready. Wow. And you had to be on all the time. That is a lot of pressure. Your career took another huge turn when you decided to write books. What made you decide to turn your second act into a third act? Uh, I wanted a life. <laughs> you know, I had been working, you know, for the FBI for 26 years. And I think the thing about being an agent, I think it can be a very stressful job, very demanding job, but you have ups and downs. So while you're investigating something, you have a little bit more control of your life. You can decide when you're going to do an interview, when there needs to be a surveillance, you know, when you're going to execute a warrant. Um, the only time you really lose control of your life is during a trial because that's just on, you know, you're, you're either on trial or you're doing witness prep in the evening. And so then, you know, your, your, your weekends and your evenings kind of are, are not your own anymore. And I'm talking about somebody who's working economic crime, which I did for most of my career. If you're working terrorism or on a gang task force and, you know, it's, it's probably <laughs> your life is not your own probably even more. But I did that. And then, of course, I did the media relations. And then I went to SEPTA. And then I realized my, you know, for almost all of my adult life, I have, my life has not been my own. I've, I've at the beck and call of, you know, my agency, whether it's the FBI or the, you know, the transportation system. And I started feeling it, you know, I started feeling it. <laughs> Hair is falling out, gaining weight and all that stuff. And I really wanted to write books. I had been, I started my first novel when I was in the FBI. And during that seven years at SEPTA, I was writing it and I got my literary agent and, you know, I was doing all of that stuff. And when finally it looked like it was going to happen, I thought, you know what? I don't need to work this hard. I don't need to keep running myself into the ground. And so I quit. I like to tell people I didn't retire. I quit. But I loved the job and I loved the people, but I wanted to do other things. I wanted I had all this creative energy, which as a media director, you really get to use a lot of it. You know, because a lot of the things that you're doing are proactive, you know, as far as presenting your, whether it's the FBI or, or the transportation service, presenting that to the public. But I had so much more creative things that I wanted to do. And so I thought, you know what? It's time for you to start doing those things. A lot of risk comes with that. So many people are reluctant to leave an established career with a paycheck to start their second acts and follow their dreams out of fear it might not work out. So what do you say to those people who have all this passion and really want to follow their dreams, but they're afraid to make that leap? If what you're doing will help you reach your goals, even if you're afraid, do it anyway. If you really want to reach your goal, you're going to have to step out of that fear and do it anyway. It's just no easier thing for me to say. Recognize that you're afraid. Recognize that you're taking a risk and do it anyway. We see people out there doing similar things. And if they can do it, there's no reason why we can't do it. Yes. I did the same thing that you did, Jerry. When I left the Bureau, I could have taken a cybersecurity job, but I also wanted to 
pursue creative endeavors and inspire people by sharing my experiences with my public speaking. It's not the easiest road to take, but it certainly is achievable. And I can tell you that it was a rocky start because, you know, once I finished the book, I was I was so excited and ecstatic because after a few tries of getting a literary agent, I was able to get a literary agent with one of the biggest literary agencies in the country, and that's Curtis Brown. I was just so excited when this this huge agency you know, offered to represent me in my book. And I just, you know, it's like, okay, I quit. I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to become a best-selling novelist (laughs) and they couldn't sell it. Now, maybe if we could have kept going and tried with some of the smaller publishers or it would have sold, but I wanted, if I was going to sell the book, I wanted to sell to one of the big publishers and the literary agent, you know, was not able to sell my book to Penguin Random House or Simon, yeah, and Simon and Schuster. He wasn't able to sell it to them, and so this is really where I stepped out of my comfort zone, and my confidence really bloomed. I thought, you know what? If it's not going to be sold to a big publisher, I'm just going to do it myself. And I independently published that book, and since then, it's worked out real well for me. I've independently published the rest of them. And so that was kind of scary, you know, telling everybody I was leaving because, you know, my book was going to be published by, you know, uh, you know, a big traditional publisher and then it didn't happen. And then you went on to have this amazing podcast, the FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams, and you've had 223 episodes, 5 million downloads. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm heading towards five million, so I don't want anybody in, you know, in three months to say, "Wait a minute, I thought she had five million three months ago." Now she's <laughs> celebrating it, breeding it. But I'm I'm hitting in that direction. I've hit four. I passed four million, and I'm heading towards five million. But that podcast was really all about selling books because, again, I had this literary agent, and we were going to sell it big time to a publisher. And one of the things that he suggested was that I start building a platform, you know, to obtain potential readers. And so I thought to myself, the book is about an FBI agent. It's about her career. So in order to develop readers, let me do a podcast about FBI, about the FBI, and let me feature when I can people who have FBI agents who have written books about the FBI, so that I'm pulling in those readers who are interested in reading, you know, about FBI stories. And so that's why I did the podcast. And the funny thing is that ever since I started, the podcast now has really uh, become the primary thing that I do. And the writing, you know, writing the books and everything has kind of taken, you know, a back seat to all of that. Um, and, and the reason being that I started the podcast in January of 2016. And of course, in the fall of 2016, it's when we had the election and when the FBI was pulled kicking and screaming and, you know, yelling into the political climate. And that's when the podcast really started to take off and people were interested in learning more about who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And one of the things that I 
promised my listeners is that I will never be partisan, that I will never be political. So it's a safe place for people to come to learn the truth about the FBI. That's terrific. And you have agents come on and talk about different cases. And I hear episode 201 is your best episode. Oh, what is episode 201? (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Let me back up. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yes. That would be the episode that I was on talking about my experiences working Asian organized crime in Little Saigon. Yes, absolutely. That's the one that's hit, that hits the charts every time. Uh, You've had a lot of amazing agents come on the show to talk about these groundbreaking cases, but I also want to talk about your books. Yes. Okay. So my most famous book is my nonfiction, which is FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. And I have a companion book with that, and that is FBI Word Search Puzzles, Fun for Armchair Detectives. And then my crime novels are Pay to Play, which is about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the strip club industry. And it's a dark uh, novel about a very flawed FBI character. And then the second novel in that series is called Greedy Givers. And it actually is a fictionalized version of one of my biggest cases, which which was a $350 million Ponzi scheme. And the third book and finishing up that trilogy is called Spoiled Sport. And I hope to have that out this year sometime if I can get my butt in the chair and stick it there so I can finish writing it. <laughs> I, I want to get to the moral of your story. And I love how you like to phrase it. You say, don't retire, rewire. What does that mean to you? Uh, That definitely means that, you know, when you get to be a certain age and you start thinking about the things that you've done in your life and what you wish you had done, that you should remember that you still got more life and whatever it is that you felt Ah, you know, I spent all my career doing this. I wish I had done that. Well, now you have the opportunity to do it. And usually you're going to even be more successful because you now have the money and the freedom and the time to really put everything that you have into that new opportunity. And I think that is, you know, that is just so powerful if you think about it you know, to, to have that freedom that you never had before. And not only that, you have so many life skills stocked up that can only expedite the process of being successful because you're not starting from scratch the way you would have decades ago. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I had to add that into my list of, of why, you know, now is the time to do those things that you had always wished you had, uh, you know, wanted to do. Probably when I think about it, you know, again, I joined the FBI, not because I had dreamed about being an FBI agent, you know, all of my young life, but because it was an opportunity that was presented to me. And I thought, oh, yeah, this looks good. And so I stepped in and I did it. And I absolutely loved that career. There are no regrets whatsoever. You know, I learned so much and I had I I felt so good about 
you know, the, the, the service and, and what I was doing to, to serve and protect its law enforcement, you know, uh, the public. So I don't have any regrets, but you know, there were other things that I wanted to do and that was you know, to write books and kind of be like, uh, you know, let my inner Oprah out. And now I get to do all of that, you know, and you know, who knows, you know, I got some other things, uh, <laughs> you know, coming up that, that, um, that I'm going to be doing. And, uh, I'm excited to, to see how those things are going to go. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about my Hollywood adventures? I do because they are yet another example of once you put your mind to doing something and you put yourself out there, that good things will come to you. All right. So I was telling you about the book that I wrote, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which goes through 20 cliches that you see about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. And I developed those through the podcast, you know, just talking to different, you know, guests on the podcast and mentioning, you know, yeah, this is how the case worked, but that's not how they show it on TV. And so I developed these and and turned it into a book. Well, through the podcast and the book in the same week during the same seven day period, I got contacted by two different production companies. And so now I'm under contract and this is so wild because I wasn't looking for this. You know, I wasn't thinking I was going to do this, but I got, but I'm now under contract with Disney, which is for a show that's going to be on FX network. And then with Warner brothers and bad robot. And if you know who bad robot is, you know who I'm hanging out with. Wow. Or show that. Yes. For a show that's on HBO max that's going to be coming on HBO max. Both of those shows will start filming, I guess, at you know, as soon as it's safe, but you know, at the end of the year or next year, I can't tell you anything about them. You know, they're totally different shows and it's totally exciting and fascinating to be occasionally to get invited into the writer's room via zoom to, you know, actually talk to, them as they're developing the scripts and answering FBI questions. And then I also get sent emails and, 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 and have an opportunity to actually read the scripts and go through and write out what is, you know, not authentic and how they could make it better and send it back. So it's been fun. You know, it, it, not a lot of time. It's just a, a couple of hours here and there a few times a, uh, a month. But I'm I'm loving it, of course, as a novelist to, to have an opportunity to work with these experienced writers. That is amazing, Jerry. Congratulations on that. Yeah. So another reinvention. You know, I went from an FBI agent to an author to a podcaster. And now I'm a TV, uh, FBI TV uh, consultant, you know. But, you know, when there, I'm sure that it didn't go in a linear, just straight line. It had to have just built on itself over time. And I'm sure there were times where you thought, okay, this is not working. How did you get yourself through those times? That's a good question. It's because I had a goal. I had a goal and I could see it in front of me and my purpose you know, my motivation was to get from where I was to that goal. And so it's all about training and putting in the time and asking the questions and educating yourself. I mean, the first year of my podcast, 
I had some fantastic guests and I had the same format, but I could never get the audio right because uh, so many of my guests were not were were older agents that retired and they just didn't want to do the the Zoom or the Skype thing and so a lot of it is by telephone and it is awful sounding. I mean you can hear everything but now you know I I I listen to it sometimes and I think God I wish I had could do that again and have you know a little bit better audio but it was part of learning and you know once I knew better I did better and you know so it's just a matter of of just moving ahead and, and not beating yourself up when things don't work out as well as you, you know, hope they would. But how do you keep believing when all signs are telling you this isn't going to work? It's that confidence again of knowing this is not working right now, but I will be able to figure it out. If, the, if she can do it, if he could do it, I can figure this out. So it's just knowing that don't sweat it, you know, just nobody's really watching right now. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just, just keep going, just power through and, you know, it, it, it will get done. It, you know, you'll be able to, to take care of it. Isn't that the truth? Don't you think that everybody's watching whenever things, when you're failing at something or things aren't going as, as well as you think they should? Yeah. My mother used to say, you would not care so much about what people think if you really knew that they didn't think anything. You know? <laughs> no, wait a minute. You, you would not think about what people cared if you really knew that they didn't. They don't care. Nobody, you know how you sit there and you're worried about what you're going to wear that day. And then you think about it. What did so-and-so wear yesterday? And you cannot think of what this woman had on yesterday. And then you realize nobody really cares what you're wearing today. Just put it on and go out the door. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and your guidance and everything that you have done and uh, all of your support that you've given me. Well, I'm just so excited for this new podcast of yours. I think it's going to be extremely helpful for not just young girls, but women who have not had the encouragement uh, you know, that they deserve. And it will be so great for them to be able to to listen to women who have kind of persevered through all kinds of adversity and, and to understand the main thing that we've both said uh, during this episode, which is, if they can do it, I can do it. I truly value you as a listener and would love to show my appreciation. Visit me at GinaLOsborne.com and I will send you a free ebook called Five Strategies to Navigate a Male-Dominated Workplace. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and are feeling inspired, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite listening platform. Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne is produced and edited by Lisa Osborne. Theme music is Leading Lady by retired IRS criminal investigation attache Clarissa Balmaceda featuring Alex Castillo. Find us on social media through GinaLOsborne.com slash Lead Like a Lady. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne wherever you get your podcasts. 